0: Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by a Kenosha, Wisconsin police officer in late August. They shot my son seven times. Like he didn't matter. But my son matters. Since that shooting, Kenosha has been the site of unrest, protests, vandalism, and violence.
1: Kenosha is still hunkered down, boarded up, and reeling from days of flaming buildings and anger in the streets.
0: Days after the protests and unrest began, 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse traveled a short trip from his home to Kenosha, where self-declared militia members and armed counter-protesters had been appearing. Rittenhouse was armed with a rifle. Later, authorities say Rittenhouse shot three protesters, killing two of them. President Trump has condemned violence from those he calls rioters and looters. Yet Trump suggested Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. Uh,
1: I guess he was in very big trouble. He would have been, I, he probably would have been killed, but it's under, it's under investigation.
0: Trump has emphasized what he calls his message of law and order, defending law enforcement, condemning protesters, and insisting Democratic leaders and Democratic nominee Joe Biden are responsible for the country's turmoil. Biden, meanwhile, has focused on a message of unity. He sought to strike a difficult balance between condemning violence on all sides of the political spectrum and acknowledging systemic racism in the country and in policing.
1: I look at this violence and I see lives and communities and the dreams of small businesses being destroyed, and the opportunity for real progress on the issues of race and police reform, and justice being put to the
0: test. The two candidates are painting very different pictures about the state of our country and about the causes of unrest. So as we head toward the November election, how much are these two starkly different narratives a reflection of the divisions in our country? How much are they responsible for stoking those divisions? And are there any checks on what the U.S. president can say? This is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. So in Kenosha,
1: Wisconsin, what happened first was Jacob Blake was shot seven times by a white police officer in the back.
0: That's The Post's White House reporter, Ashley Parker. She's been covering Trump's response to the events out of Kenosha.
1: And following that, the city erupted into civil unrest and racial justice protests and more violence and looting. About two days after Jacob Blake was shot, 17-year-old uh, Trump supporter named Kyle Rittenhouse was out there protesting vigilante style. He had an assault weapon and he ended up killing two people. And then the city began teetering on the brink in the wake of all of this.
0: And what has the president said specifically in response to Jacob Blake's shooting?
1: He's not said much in response to Jacob Blake's shooting. When he visited Kenosha, Wisconsin, where this happened, he did not mention Jacob Blake's name. He did not meet with... Jacob Blake's family, the president has taken what happened in Kenosha and really used it as an opportunity to express his solidarity with police officers and to push a hard line law and order message.
0: And what has Trump said in response to the alleged killing of two people by Kyle Rittenhouse?
1: So when Trump has been talking about this, he has very much condemned the Black Lives Matters protesters, calling them anti-fascists and looters and rioters. But he has been less critical of his own people who have also engaged in some of the same behavior. And so when he was specifically asked about Kyle Rittenhouse, this 17-year-old who killed two protesters who had been at Trump rallies, expressed his support for Trump, the president said it's a very interesting situation. And he implied that it seemed to be in self-defense. He said Kyle Rittenhouse seemed to be running away from protesters and defending himself. And in talking about protests that we're seeing going on in Portland, Oregon, he was also asked again about his own supporters who were pepper spraying and shooting paintballs at the other side. While condemning the violence from the left, he again said, paint isn't bullets Paint is simply a defense mechanism and seemed to create a, a different equivalency for behavior.
0: Trump visited Kenosha on Tuesday, as you said. Where did he go on that trip?
1: He went to see some of these buildings that had been destroyed by the protests, by the looting and, and riots and fires. And then he also held a roundtable with law enforcement there, local law enforcement and local leaders.
0: I don't want to rush ahead to the politics portion of this conversation, but I do think it's important to note why Kenosha's location matters to the presidential race.
1: Kenosha matters because of the state it's in, Wisconsin. This is a state that is going to be a critical battleground in the 2020 race. It's a state that President Trump flipped from Democratic control in 2016 when he beat Hillary Clinton. And it's one of these states where in 2016 people think if only Hillary Clinton had had gone and visited and spent more time there, you know, but for a relatively small amount of votes— maybe she could have won the state and had a better chance of winning the election.
0: What kind of message then did Trump's Kenosha visit send and who was intended to reach?
1: The message in Kenosha, again, was a very clear law and order message. It was a support and solidarity for the police message. The The Democratic mayor of the city and the Democratic governor of the state had basically made clear that the president was uninvited and unwelcome, and they worried that his presence would incite more violence. The president, for what it's worth, did not Insight violence there, he didn't stir that up overtly, but his message was very much not meeting with Jacob Blake's family, not using the moment to try to unite the nation, but expressing, again, support and solidarity for the business owners who lost their businesses and also more clearly for the police officers. And when he was there, he echoed something that he's been saying previously, which is when you have these police officers, as we've been watching for years now, who often end up shooting and killing black men and women, many of them unarmed, he likened it to choking. He said there's one or two bad apples and they choke. And he'd used that language of choking earlier in the week when he was doing an interview with Laura Ingraham. And he likened those police officers like the ones who shot Jacob Blake to golfers who choke in a big tournament and miss a three foot putt. And it's worth noting that Laura Ingraham, who is a very friendly interviewer, more of a Trump cheerleader than a Journalist in these instances, she raced to cut him off and said, Well, Mr. President, surely you don't mean that it's actually like golf. That's what the media would accuse you of saying. And so, again, he used that choking language in Kenosha, but he did not use the golf analogy.
0: Has the Trump administration played any role in quelling some of the violence in Kenosha? Have they taken steps to de escalate there? Not.
1: Especially. One of the things the president has been pressing is that in some of these democratic states and cities that are experiencing protests and violence, wanting to send in the National Guard. In this case, the governor of Wisconsin was the one who brought in the National Guard to try to help quell the protests. And the president did take credit for the National Guard going in. But it's worth noting that this was actually a decision that was made on the state level by their governor.
0: And what about in terms of money? Has the Trump administration provided any money to help things in Kenosha?
1: The president, while he was there, did announce money for Kenosha. Some of it would go specifically to law enforcement. Some of it would go to help these small businesses that were destroyed by the riots and the protests. And I checked with the White House because I was unclear where the money would be coming from. But a lot of it looks like it's coming from various Department of Justice funds and a little bit from a, a previously existing coronavirus relief fund.
0: Okay, so with all of this as background, I want to talk about the very different narratives around unrest in this country that have been painted by Biden and Trump. After the killing of George Floyd back in May and the protests that followed, polling really reflected that Americans believed that racial inequality was a problem and that police reform was a necessary thing. And at the time, Trump was pretty far behind in the 2020 polls. And yet, Trump seems to have made this strategic decision about what story to tell now, that protesters are looters and agitators, or sometimes he calls them thugs, and that unrest in the country is because of the failures of local Democratic leaders. Why is this the approach of the Trump team, given that earlier in the summer we saw such widespread public support for protests?
1: You're right. Earlier in the summer, we really saw the ground shift from under Trump, where you just had huge swaths of the country moving so quickly to to basically say that racism was real and it was a problem and it was something that bothered them and it was something they wanted remedied. And in many ways, they supported the protests. And that just wasn't where the president was. And it's not where he is now. It's worth noting that while the president was in Kenosha, he was pressed a couple times by the media traveling with him about does he think racial injustice is a problem? And and he basically said no and refused to answer the question and turned it back on. Well, instead of talking about racism, let's talk about these looters who are dist- destroying cities. But the president, especially now, especially with coronavirus dragging into its six month, his team thinks that this is a winning message for him, that when there is civil unrest across the nation, that that is something that really bothers the suburban women who are going to be crucial to this election, that there is a difference between peaceful protests, which a lot of this is. But the images that we're seeing on TV are of violence and of looting and of riots, and there is a difference, again, between peaceful protests and suburban women feeling like their downtown could be ravaged by this and it could be unsafe to go to the shops they used to go to. And that what the country wants in a choice between him and Joe Biden, he will win because what the country will want is a a strong, tough leader. And that is what the president is offering. So... uh, whether he's right or not, his gut and the decision they have made is to double down on law and order, on strength, on toughness, on support for the police at the expense of the movement and of the protesters.
0: Is that strategy effectively reshaping the narrative around protests and police reform? It is. And it. Isn't the president just
1: by virtue of being the president has a tremendous platform and bullhorn? And Trump, in particular, with his ability to hijack any narrative and any news cycle, has certainly injected this. Into the news. He has recently forced Joe Biden, who very much had wanted to make the campaign about the coronavirus, and what he says is the president's failed leadership about the coronavirus, to have to engage on this issue where Joe Biden is perhaps not as comfortable. The other Striking thing the president is doing is he's talking about these protests and the looting and the rioting, and he's saying, This is Joe Biden's America. And if you elect Joe Biden, you're just going to get more of this. The problem is, it's not Joe Biden's America. Joe Biden isn't even an elected official right now. This is literally at its most base level, Donald Trump's America, but he may be somewhat successful in convincing some voters that that this is somehow the fault of Joe Biden and a preview of what a Biden administration would look like.
0: So speaking of Biden, how has he reacted to the shooting of Jacob Blake, to the protests and then to the killings by Rittenhouse?
1: Well, Joe Biden is making a trip to Kenosha Thursday. And it will be very different uh, in terms of who he will meet with and what his focus will be on. And Joe Biden has now weighed in more generally on these themes. Joe Biden is now making a broader argument about Trump's failed leadership and making the point that if Trump had been a stronger, better, less failed leader, we wouldn't be dealing. Not that there wouldn't be racism or even police shootings, but that we wouldn't be dealing with these necessarily widespread Spread protests that have turned violent because the president would have played the more traditional role of a healer in chief and a uniter in chief, that if the president had an exhibited failed leadership, we wouldn't be approaching Labor Day and starting the school year with kids still doing remote learning. So that's how he's talking about it. He's still making the leadership case for Trump and how Trump is very much like just about everything else, Biden would say, mishandled the aftermath of these police shootings.
0: What steps is the Biden campaign taking to combat some of the messaging coming out of the Trump camp?
1: Joe Biden, I think, has sort of hit the physical campaign trail a little earlier than we expected. And he's pushing back somewhat directly. The president has made very clear that he believes that this is Joe Biden's America. And Joe Biden has made the point that you and I were just discussing of. This isn't my America. This is your America. The president has very much tried to tie Joe Biden to the radical left, to Antifa, to the most extreme elements of the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden very directly addressed that and and confronted that and kind of said, hey, look at me. I've been in public service for nearly 50 years. Do I seem like a secret anti-fascist? Do I seem like I have a soft spot for the radical left? So he's getting into this debate somewhat on Donald Trump's terms, but he is addressing it very directly.
0: Do these two different narratives at play really reflect a deeply divided America? How much of what we're seeing is sort of politics as usual versus a true fracturing of two parties living in two different realities?
1: It very much feels like the latter because it's more than just politics at this point, right? You have cities that are truly roiling with tension and unrest and teetering on the brink. What we're seeing in these cities would be hard for any president to solve, right? Barack Obama was the first black president. And there were all these hopes for him that he could, as he said, make America not red and, and blue, but the United States of America. And it just simply didn't happen. It's a daunting task for any president. And now you have President Trump, who's not even pretending to try, but in fact, is doing the exact opposite. So President Trump is taking real divisions that would be tough to grapple with in any situation and deliberately throwing accelerant on the fire.
0: Now, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned Trump's conversation with Laurie Ingraham of Fox News. And he told her this week that Joe Biden is the victim of mind control by quote people that are in dark shadows. He also made claims of a plane loaded with thugs on the way to do big damage. These are unproven claims. And this isn't the first time we've seen Trump make false claims or promote conspiracy theories. But it raises a question that I realize we haven't forthright asked on this show, which is, are there built in protections against a president spreading misinformation like this? And I suppose the answer in part is the press. But I'm wondering if there's anything else to stop a president from making false claims like this
1: it's a great question and we're sort of learning the answer in real time which is there's not there's there's a press who can hold him accountable and fact check him and call him out on his lies and his deception and his misinformation and now we're seeing some of these big social media companies struggle with what do you do when you have a president of the United States arguably the most powerful person in the United States using their platforms to spread misinformation, deception and lies. And so you've seen Twitter in a couple of instances take down tweets, retweets by the president or the president's campaign and try to rein him in that way. But there is free speech. And so the, the president very much can and as we're seeing has and, and will blast things out into the ether that are simply not true.
0: All right, Ashley, on that note, as we head toward the election just two months away, do you expect these competing campaign messages about unrest in this country to continue until then? Or do you expect some of this to sort of peter out and a new narrative to to take over?
1: On the one hand, I think it will sort of ebb and flow, but we will find ourselves talking again more about the coronavirus and what is going on with that. We're talking about that more just now, again, because it's the beginning of the school year, and that's a reminder of just how much has has not been solved and just how bad this pandemic still is. But I also think we're going to continue to talk about racism and the civil unrest probably between now and the election, in part because the president very clearly thinks it's a winning message for him. And in part, unfortunately, Because I cannot imagine we will get from now until Election Day without another police shooting of an unarmed black man. And that will prompt this whole pattern, this whole
0: debate again. That is a heartbreaking reality. All right, Ashley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? As always, if you liked it, please share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnick with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.